Hello everyone, my name is JB with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my unassuming studio tucked away somewhere beneath the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Friday, October the 6th. 2023, and uh, I find myself right now, along with my family, in Norman, Oklahoma, for the Prophecy Watchers Prophecy Summit, the Imminent Return Prophecy Summit. I am so excited to be here. I'll be speaking later today and also speaking uh, tomorrow. A whole host of folks here at this conference. I've been mentioning it all week, but we've got Mondo Gonzalez. We've got Bill Salas, who I had on the program uh, yesterday. We've got Billy Crone, or I guess it was Wednesday I had uh, Bill on. Billy Crone is at this conference. Tom Hughes is here. Brandon Holthouse, Mark Hitchcock, Bill Koenig, L.A. Marzulli, Dr. Nathan Jones, on and on. Dr. Randall Price, I was just with him. Ryan Peterson is here. Uh, too many names to mention. Fantastic weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And as I mentioned, I'll be speaking uh, today and tomorrow. But because I'm out of pocket... Um, I wanted to at least post something. So we're replaying a podcast uh, today that I did with Dr. Thomas Ice from this past summer entitled Debunking Myths About the Rapture. And uh, Tommy and I have been uh, friends and colleagues for many years, going back uh, well over 20 years, uh, 25 years almost. And uh, this is a really important issue, and it was uh, really well received when we posted it several months ago, and we wanted to post it again because we continue to get emails uh, from people asking questions about the rapture, and of course, uh, critical comments from folks who have bought into some of the myths that are continue to circulate out there uh, about the pre-trib rapture. And so uh, we just took time in this podcast to kind of uh, tick through them one at a time and talk about why some of these uh, criticisms of the pre-trib rapture are embarrassingly false, and uh, they're perpetuating lies that have long ago been debunked, and that's why we call it debunking myths about the rapture. So I know you'll appreciate this, even if you've already heard it the first time around last summer. We're always picking up new listeners and our audience is growing and it's good to kind of reinforce and and listen to these arguments again. So in just a moment, we will play that interview that I did again back in July of this past summer with Dr. Thomas Ice, debunking myths about the rapture. But as I mentioned, I'm here in Norman, Oklahoma for the Prophecy Watchers Conference. And, you know, I've been thinking by way of devotion here at the outset of the podcast, I just, uh, you know, one of the passages that's been on my mind a lot lately with the writing of my new book was uh, Revelation 13. I've kind of camped out there for the whole last year. Uh, That's where we get a lot of information about the false prophet who's the subject of the new book. And verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, that's the false prophet, And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And it just really strikes me that a lamb and a dragon are two polar opposite animals. You know, a lamb, you think gentle, uh, even if it has two little nub horns, it's still a gentle animal. You you take your children, I take my granddaughter to, to petting zoos where they have little lambs in there. You're certainly not afraid of them. They're gentle. But then a dragon, of course, is fierce and often fire-breathing and just immediately invokes fear and danger. And, and, and what we see here is a picture of the way this false prophet is going to function. And he, he's going to look outwardly uh, genteel. 
But boy, the minute he speaks, you can realize he is speaking, as the text goes on to tell us, with all of the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist. And he's going to cause all the earth to worship the Antichrist. And uh, he's going to perform great signs, and he's going to make fire come down out of heaven in the sight of man. And this is no uh, world figure to trifle with. Now, of course, we believe the Bible is quite clear that the church will not be present during the seven-year reign of terror of the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and false prophet. But nevertheless, it's just a, a reminder of how easily people will be deceived and, and duped. And that's why 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 reminds us to, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so in the lead up to the tribulation, even though we know we will be raptured before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, before the seven-year tribulation, nevertheless, uh, false prophets are on the rise all around us, and we need to heed the warning of 1 John 4.1 to test the spirits, to be alert, to, to pay attention. And, uh, you know, th this is a new book, Spirit of the False Prophet, which, by the way, you can uh, if you want to learn more about it, go to spiritofthefalseprophet.org, spiritofthefalseprophet.org. It really constitutes the, the third in a, a series uh, of books about the end times and particularly how the stage is being set for this dynamic duo, the Antichrist and False Prophet, to rule the world. And over the, year, over the last year and a half since I first wrote the first one, which was March of last year, and then the second volume came out in October of last year, and then this new book, Spirit of the False Prophet, just came out September 1st. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity at various conferences and speaking engagements to sign books, and early on, uh, after the second book came out, I kind of developed a pattern of what I would sign. When I'd sign Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, I would always say, stay awake, and I would put First Thessalonians 5, 6, which reminds us to not be asleep like other people, but be awake because we are children of the day and, and we, we should not be caught off guard by these prophetic happenings. And then when I would sign Spirit of the uh, Antichrist, Volume 2, I would put stay alert and list 1 Peter 5, 8, that our adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion. So stay awake, stay alert. And then when Spirit of the False Prophet came out, I hadn't even given it any thought. And first opportunity I had to sign a book, uh, I thought, oh, what what should I say? You know, and I always try to say the same thing um, uh, when I sign these books. So just give a, a passage of scripture, encourage people to look it up. And so I thought, well, I'll keep with the alliterative theme. And since we're talking here about being wise and discerning and testing the spirits and being able to distinguish uh, between a lamb and a dragon and, and the kind of stuff that I talk about in the new book, I decided to go with Stay Astute. So I've been signing these books, Stay Astute, 1 John 4.1. And those are three great, I think, admonitions that are thoroughly biblical that we all need to remember. Stay awake, 1 Thessalonians 5.6. Stay alert, 1 Peter 5.8. And stay astute, 1 John 4.1. Be wise and pay attention. So I hope that encourages you today. Uh, I want to remind you, if you're at the Prophecy Watchers Conference, and I know there's uh, two or 3,000 people here, be sure and come by our table in the exhibit hall. Say hello to my wife, Wendy, Brooke, uh, who works for the ministry. Some of my other kids are there. Of course, you can meet my darling granddaughter, Zoe. And uh, just say hello. I'd love to meet you. Next Saturday, a week from tomorrow, I will be in Flint, uh, Texas, at Flint Baptist Church on October the 15th. Uh, speaking three times on Bible prophecy. If you're in anywhere in the Dallas or East Northeast Texas area, come see us on uh, sun, uh, Sunday, October the 15th. 
again, that's Sunday, October the 15th. And uh, love to love to meet you there as well. Uh, that church also does live stream. So if you go to our website, click on the events page or the highlight carousel where I've highlighted that event, uh, it'll take you straight to their page and then you can kind of get to the live stream uh, from there. Uh, I want to remind you again on Tuesday, October the 10th, we've got our inaugural Premier Membership Zoom meeting, which is exclusively for our Premier members. And we're going to be taking your questions, just having a good dialogue, getting to know one another. I'm going to give you a report on how things went at the conference where I am right now. We're going to talk about some of the behind the scenes goings on and, and the discussions that I had. And it's just going to be a great evening. Again, it's live. Uh, that's Tuesday night, October the 10th, but it's for Premier members only. Uh, and even if you are not able to make it as a Premier member, uh, we will post the video recording of that to the Premier page uh, so that you can watch it at your leisure. But if you're not yet signed up for Premier membership, I want you to pray about that. I realize it's not for everybody. There is a small cost associated with being part of the NBW Premier membership team. Um, but uh, I hope you'll consider it. Love to have you a part of that meeting. And we're going to do those at least monthly, uh, periodically, to just to kind of get to know those folks in the Premier Membership uh, Club. Now, have no fear. If you're not a Premier member, we still make all of my messages and podcasts and things regularly available for free. We have a ton of free content on the Not By Works store that's available to anyone. We just posted some new stuff uh, there, I think, in the last day or so. Uh, so we're not taking anything away from you. We just decided to kind of zero in and give some of our uh, you know, folks out there that really want to dig a little deeper and maybe be a little more involved in our ministry here at Not By Works the chance to do so. So we launched a couple of weeks ago this premier uh, membership uh, opportunity. So just want to remind you, check it out at the Not By Works store. Uh, you can learn more about it. Uh, and I'd love to have you be a part of that group for our first inaugural live Zoom session on October the 10th. Um, other than that, just wanted to kind of say a quick hello from the conference here in Oklahoma. Hope you enjoy this replay of our uh, uh, podcast from this past summer. And if we can ever do anything more, you be sure and reach out. Uh, our phone number is 1-800-895-1851. Again, that's 1-800-895-1851. You can talk to Brooke. Uh, or feel free to reach us through our website, notbyworks.org. Please pray for us as we continue our travels. Pray for me as I speak today and tomorrow. Pray that the gospel will go forth clearly and that the Lord will give me clarity of mind and clarity of thought and that ultimately he will get the glory. We sure appreciate all of your prayers. Uh, we've had a great week uh, of podcast. If you haven't listened to them yet, we had uh, a short podcast with Mondo Gonzalez on Monday about discussing the Antichrist. A powerful podcast with Lucas Doremus on Tuesday, Alternatives to Mainline Technology. Of course, uh, Bill Salas was on Wednesday to talk about the future war prophecies. That was a fantastic discussion. And, of course, our weekly World Events Update was on Thursday this week, yesterday. Uh, and uh, that was with Randy yesterday. So check them all out. God bless you, everyone. Thanks again for the prayers, and we'll talk again soon. We turn our attention to Dr. Thomas Ice. And uh, uh, Dr. Ice is the director, executive director of the Pre-Trib Research Center. He's an academician, professor, author, conference speaker. We've had the opportunity to share the platform multiple times at various uh, conferences. And uh, just really honored that he would take his time to uh, kind of share with us a little bit today on the podcast. So, Dr. Ice, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. 
So I want to start by um, just, you know, one of the biggest lies that I hear about the rapture from those who are not dispensational. Uh, you know, they may be believers, they may be students of the Bible, such as it is, but they, they're they not really connecting the dots well, and they just have become convinced that the doctrine of the rapture is some made-up theory that originates with uh, a guy named J.N. Darby and some, uh, I guess, demon-possessed gal named Margaret McDonald. Now, tell us a little bit about what the uh, the charge is and why it's uh, absurd. Yeah, that was a charge made by uh, critics of Darby about 20 or 30 years after this supposedly happened. And what you had in Scotland in the 1820s is uh, there was a whole movement, kind of like a Pentecostal charismatic movement, where uh, people would get into trances and they would uh, give revelation, supposedly, you know, about uh, this or that. And uh, that was the McDonald family was a very wealthy uh, shipping family uh, there in Glasgow, or actually further west of Glasgow. But uh, they had a, a girl, uh, their daughter was like 15 years old, Margaret, uh, when she uh, did this. She was a very sickly lady. In fact, she died in her mid-20s later. Mm-hmm. But uh, nevertheless, she would get into these trances and do this. So people were coming from all over England and places to uh, check this out. Darby went up and checked it out, and he even wrote an article uh, you know, about it and said that, you know, it was ridiculous. You know, he totally rejected this. But there are people because, like I say, 30 years later, some guy wrote a a thing saying that Darby got the rapture from that girl. And yet we have on our website, uh, there's two different versions of her. uh, Somebody back then, there were sonographers that would record things. And uh, there are two different versions of this. Uh, and neither version talks about uh, a pre-trib rapture at all. And you can go through and read those those uh, things. So, uh, plus, Darby had already uh, bought, uh, uh, discovered in his Bible study the pre-trib rapture. You know, and we, we I have articles on our website that document this stuff. One of them is a Bibliotheosacra article, for example, uh, Bibsac, um, you know, that that talks about this. And so that has been out there for years, especially a guy named Dave McPherson, who uh, I have talked with. Uh, I I haven't heard from him in years. He's probably dead by now. And he was this wacko guy from Southern California uh, who, when he would call me, you know, uh, I I could put the phone down for like five minutes and he wouldn't (laughs) even know I wasn't there. one of those kind of conversations, so to speak. And, uh, but he pushed this because he believed that the rapture cost him his uh, opportunity to go to seminary because he went down to Mexico one time and committed adultery when he was a young person. And it was because of the rapture, supposedly, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I don't understand. Was it just out of the blue that they sort of connected Darby with this McDonald family? Or, uh, I mean, wh- I understand the historical context there, but what was the, wh- why did they claim that he got this information about the rapture from from her? 
Well, uh, because they try to argue that it is a demonic source. Hmm. And so to locate that demonic source, you know, they go to Mark McDonald. So, is, there, is is there any historical evidence that they ever even crossed paths, Darby? Oh, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mentioned a moment ago that yeah. Darby did go up. A lot of people from England. And That's stuff, right. Uh, they're in this uh, five or six year period where there have a lot of people would get into trances, and she was one of them, and would give supposed revelation, and uh, stenographers would record these things and stuff like that. And Darby came back. Uh, from there and wrote a, an article, you know, saying how this is not genuine move of the Holy Spirit, needless to say. So, so I mean, but they, you don't hear them tell that part of the story, right? They don't say no. that he disavowed himself of that, you know, weird, you know, movement, this charismatic, unbiblical, really demonic uh, type of activity. He, he disavowed himself of it. So just because he, like so many others at the time, out of curiosity, right. went, they claimed that that's when he must have gotten, you know, the, you know, the, the information. Yeah, well, there was a whole, you know, it's called the Irvinite movement. And there was a whole movement that lasted up until the mid-1990s. The, the last Irvinite church in London went out of existence. And the, these were intellectuals. And it was basically a charismatic or Pentecostal movement. And, uh, you know, I mean, back then, the only people that could read, generally speaking, and were uh, intellectuals were, were the upper class. And, of course, Darby was from the upper class. And uh, he, he was an amazing person, one of the five most voluminous writers in the history of Christendom. And uh, he uh, won the gold medal award at, uh, in college uh, and for being a the top Greek student and all of this kind of stuff. He translated mm -hmm. the New Testament into five different languages, the whole Bible into three different languages. So... You know, he, he was a very impressive person, but he, he was a separatist, and people didn't like that, that, he, you know, he, he wouldn't probably get along with you or I right. <laughs> uh, if, if he was still alive. Yeah. Well, and, I can't and, wait to I can't wait to meet him someday and, and ask him sure. about about this stuff. But I mean, it's really uh, it's just fascinating to me how uh, to what links people will go to try to discredit him because you know I have a Darby translation of the Bible I have a lot of his books you know his synopsis books of the right. Bible uh, phenomenal scholar loved the Lord obviously like anybody he wasn't right on everything and none of us are and so we just do our best to connect the dots of Scripture and interpret Scripture in its literal grammatical historical setting and uh, and he did that so so I mean. Why do you think this clearly, provably false rumor about Darby somehow receiving demonic revelation from a 15-year-old continues to have traction when it's been so easily debunked? Yeah, because people who disagree with the preacher of rapture want to say it has a nefarious source for its yeah. beginning. And, yeah. and, and so they think that strengthens their arguments against pre-tribulationalism to try to say that it has this evil beginning. But what's interesting is it's, it, it, you know, 30-something uh, years ago when I started working with Tim LaHaye and we founded the Pre-Trib Research Center, we did not know of anybody uh, before Darby that taught a pre-trib rapture. 
Now, and and a lot of people don't realize there are over 500 volumes of Greek and Latin fathers that have never been translated into English. Pe- people think that they have, you know, those three volumes set, you know, of the blue, red, and green paint on the back of, of the fathers, and it's only partial. Hmm. But uh, there are over 500 volumes of, of Greek and Latin, and we have people that have started finding pre-Darby rapture statements all the way back to the, the 100s of people that taught the preacher rapture of yeah. some, of some uh, source. I mean, w- uh, for example, I found and had an article, I, I think it was in Bibsec, uh, you know, about <clears throat> a guy in, in the 1720s uh, who taught a preacher, wrote a paper uh, in England about a preacher of rapture at the university. And he was the founder of Brown University here in the United States, an Ivy League school. And he is the father of American Baptist history. And he went up and down the East Coast. And other than a book on how to raise money for colleges, uh, his uh, his books are the source of Baptist history Yeah, you know, in the colonies. And the only other book he ever wrote and had published was the one on the rapture. Hmm. And uh, I found it at, uh, you know, over in England. There weren't any copies that I've found except in the Library of Congress uh, in the United States. And uh, so I'm just saying uh, people weren't looking for a preacher of rapture yeah, because I, I, it wasn't widely held. No, that's right. I mean, you've got, what, 1,800 years of, of the Dark Ages with Roman Catholicism and, you know, dominating things. People couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And so uh, it's not at all surprising that amillennialism was was kind of the 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 viewpoint of record so to speak but i had to do during my phd studies under a friend and colleague of yours dr mike stallard i had to do research into this very thing and we discovered uh you know evidence throughout church history of uh, people who either explicitly mentioned and taught or alluded to a two-phased return of christ right. uh, once for the church and once for uh you know to come back to establish his kingdom so it's by no means a novel view uh but you know to some extent i feel like we're kind of letting them define the argument them being opponents of dispensational uh, pre-tribulational view uh because obviously any good student of theology should know that the only standard that matters is the word of god right right we want to have the discussion based on the biblical text not based on what church history uh, did or didn't say but the only reason we bring all that up is in defense of the lie that oh church history never had heard of such a thing as a rapture or a two-phased return of christ until you get to darby and this 15 year old girl i mean it's just the the uh you know every time i get an email with someone who brings that up i just delete it immediately because one of two things is true of that person either they are ignorant and they've not taken the time to do a few quick searches on the internet to prove to show that this information they have stumbled upon is has been debunked or they're an outright liar and either way i don't have the time to deal with you know people uh, like that so 
I don't mean to sound harsh, but it, you know, I did a, a podcast with Prophecy Watchers some time ago with uh, Mondo Gonzalez on, I think he called it the myth that won't die. And it was along some of these same lines. But, uh, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Bibsack. I just want to let our listeners know, by the way, we're talking to Dr. Thomas Ice, uh, preeminent scholar in the realm of pre-tribulationism, also church history, uh, executive director and founder of uh, Pre-Trib Research Center with Tim LaHaye. But, uh, you know, he's a pretty humble guy. Bibsack is, is the, uh, the premier peer-reviewed journal in the realm of theology on the planet. I think, isn't it also the longest continuously? Yeah, it is. It goes yeah. back to the 18, 1840s, early 1840s. Yeah. Th I think it came out of Princeton at some point, and then Dallas no, took no, it over. Never, no, never Princeton. It okay. was uh, out of Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, but it had been at a number, it, it had been at Xenia, okay. Pittsburgh, and a yeah. number of other schools over the years, and, and Dallas then, bought it in the 1930s. Yeah, Dallas Seminary, of course, founded in the early 20s, Lewis Berry Schaefer. It was really the beachhead, uh, along with schools like Moody, uh, that helped uh, promote uh, dispensational premillennialism. So, so, you know, we've sufficiently uh, debunked this, uh, you know, alleged connection between uh, Darby's, uh, you know, expression of pre-tribulationism and this 15-year-old demonically possessed girl. I mean, it would be almost like suggesting that because... Uh, I'm just trying to think of a geographic name. Uh, say someone like Skip Heitzig, uh, who's dispensational and lives in New Mexico. You know, somehow he got all of his information passed down to him from you know the aliens that landed at Roswell or something like that. I mean, just because there's a geographic connection does not mean uh, right. that that's the source of it. So, yeah. So, so we've de we've debunked that. We've also uh, debunked the notion that somehow you you have no record of pre-tribulational understanding of scripture prior to Darby. That's patently false. Yeah. Well, let, let me just say, no one has ever made a connection uh, between Mark McDonald, you know, and Darby. Uh, it's true. Darby went and heard her, but as I say, he wrote an article, you know, uh, debunking not yeah. just that, but all of these supposed revelations that people were getting. Now, see, people were, were more open to the possibility of direct revelation in the early 1800s, uh, the, you know, where the sides, at least as of a few years ago, are more divided now, you know, in, in that over, because of time. And there's just absolutely no connection. So the, uh, Dave McPherson and these other guys that have written these endless books and articles supposedly just assume there's a connection right you know yeah. what i mean yeah it'd be and, like i i once met as a teenager my dad worked in in manhattan for six years actually as a grade schooler in through junior high and i once uh, by happenstance met muhammad ali on the streets of manhattan that doesn't make me a muslim right just because i right. just because <laughs> i saw saw him you know so yeah i mean not only did he is there no connection made but we do have a record of him uh you know refuting and crit critiquing that whole M millerite Mac uh, mcdonald type theology right so if That's anything right. If anything, he well, the was most, against it. Actually, in the early 1830s, the most popular preacher uh, in London was a, uh, was a Irvingite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, people would come from uh, Edward Irving. You know, they would come from all around London, the rich people in their 
carriages and things and listen to him. And unfortunately, he died. He was only like uh, 37 years old or something like a tragic life. But, you know, he, he was the one that really got that movement going. You know, the urbanite movement, as it's called. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I got a, a letter, a, a snail mail letter uh, recently from a sweet lady. Um, I she was she's elderly. I could tell because she mentioned her age in the letter, uh, and essentially it was three pages, handwritten, gracious, but you could tell there was a note of concern in the letter because she said she's been listening to Not by Works Ministry. She's heard me talk about the rapture and teach about the end times, but she she had a friend. Who who you know turned her on to some of these anti rapture groups, and her friend told her about you know Margaret McDonald, same old thing, and she said it concerns me that that you're teaching this demonically you know sourced information about the rapture, and you know that really bothers me when people will take advantage of otherwise students of the Bible who are simply trying to study the Word of God and just be dismissive and act like. Oh, you shouldn't listen to, you know, this Hicks guy because he's, you know, don't you know that the rapture is, you know, from a, a bad source? So, so I think we've, we've sufficiently talked about that. I want to encourage people when you hear that, uh, don't even give it credence because, uh, the people that would use such an argument, like I said, they're either, you know, ignorant in the textbook meaning of the term or they are, just intentionally perpetuating something it's a logical fallacy is it not such as ad hominem or you know fallacious uh you know support well, that kind of thing uh, a guy came out with a book and, and has written subsequent articles some have been published in bibsac uh and he's a post-millennial preterist hmm. and he has found two or three pre-darby rapture statements one from the early church one in the middle ages etc and and he is totally opposed to the preacher of rapture, but you know he ar he argues very strongly that the preacher of rapture has been taught throughout church history. There you and, go. He disagrees with it, right? It's yeah. just uh, it's just that people, uh, for for example, uh, starting around four hundred, you know when uh, when um, uh, not Augustine, not oh. Augustine, but the other guy, Origen. Uh, Origin, Origin. Yeah. said away with a thousand years, you know, in like the three nineties or something. And uh, you had people that who were premillennial that wouldn't use the term killiest mm -hmm. or millennialist because uh, they would be considered a heretic. And finally in the uh, mid four hundreds in one creed, they put it in as heresy. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Even though all of the early church fathers that wrote on this were clearly premillennial. And as we found, some were pre-trib. We even found a ah mill guy uh, who was pre-trib huh. in the early church. I'm just saying they're, they're reading all of these, uh, you know, people that know Greek and Latin are reading this stuff yeah. and that have never been translated. And so there's, there, you know, uh, at, at least people ought to recognize that these views have been around since the church began. In fact, uh, for example, the Septa Millennial view, that's the view that, uh, that that probably up until the Reformation and even beyond, probably 80% of church fathers 
believed this, mm -hmm. that the earth was going to last 6,000 years because the earth was created in six days, a day is what the Lord is a thousand years. You know, I mean, uh, Augustine held that view. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's this anticipation and, you know, depending on the calendar that we're going to, you know, you know, that the, the church age is about to end because of the basic general 6,000 year called septimillennial view. And, uh, but these are things that have been widely held, you know, by people uh, down through church history. And yet, uh, you know, if you believe in the preacher rapture, you're supposedly some kind of weirdo. Yeah, you're, you're not, you're naive, unstudied, that kind of yes. thing. But yeah, just for our listeners, because I know we have a, a quite a, a broad range of uh, audience here uh, that's growing at MBW. And uh, Kiliasm, which you mentioned, that's what, basically pre-millennialism was called as the view right. that there's going to be a literal earthly 1000 year uh kingdom and you're right all of the early church fathers held that view certainly the apostles did um yes. and uh and you know uh, origin who we talked about a second ago he's widely considered the father of, of allegorical interpretation and or, or uh, augustine who came after him then simply crystallized it in his book city of god and so by the time you get what 300 years or so removed from the time of christ people christians were beginning to uh essentially fulfill what peter said they would in his letter and that is that oh he he hasn't come back yet so maybe we've misunderstood and maybe well, he's not literally plus, coming back plus uh rome had been conquered right yeah you know uh, people weren't amillennial until after 313 and uh, that's that's why people begin to say we're in the millennium you see because uh, all people that had the scars from persecution uh before the roman uh constantine christianized the roman empire you know we're serving in the roman empire now yeah and so that had a wave of optimism and you went from about uh, they say 11% of the empire is Christian to 98% wow. in like 50 years. Yeah. And so that began, to, so the, that's where the idea that the kingdom is now, you know, millennialism and post-millennialism began yeah. to take shape during that environment. And then they banned Kiliasm, as I say, for over a thousand years. And once premillennialism came back, uh, you know, we've got, dozens and dozens of people who taught some form of pre-tribulationalism as we look deeper into their writings. Yeah, email, one that I remember from my studies is Emil Gear. He was, yes. what century was he? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. He's like the... Uh, Later early 1800s, early yeah, 1800s. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I tell you, um, it's uh, it's it's interesting. You know, next time someone tells you, well, you don't see much. Uh, well, first of all, if they say you don't see any pre-tribulational teaching throughout church history, you can just look them right in the face and say, well, you've obviously never studied it because some of the top scholars on the planet have admitted, even if they don't agree with it, they've admitted it's there. But secondly, if they say, well, either you don't see much of it, just say, well, of course you don't, because you, if you taught it in the early days of the church, uh, you'd be, you know, labeled a heretic and burned at the stake. So, I mean, you know. Right. Uh, well, uh, Bob Gundry, even in a letter that he wrote to me along with a, an appendix and a book that he wrote on eschatology in the 90s admitted that we had found pre-tribulationalism before that. And he's Mr. Mm -hmm. Anti. 
pre-trib. Oh yeah, I remember Dr. Walver talking about him in class. You know, but uh, yeah, so uh, so so we can we we really should set aside the entire discussion of was it taught in church right. history? Clearly, it has been. It's it's a minority view at times, but of course, God typically moves in the remnant, right? I mean, Noah and his family were a pretty small remnant too. It doesn't mean they weren't right. So, uh, so, but the fact is, it is there. So, really, that kind of debunks that notion. And let's get back to what does the Bible say? And uh, you know, church history, of course, is important, but it's not definitive when it comes to doctrinal matters. And so, uh, we believe that a consistent literal hermeneutic, as Ryrie talks about, will lead one inevitably to a distinction between God's program for the church and His program for Israel. And consequently, just as the church began suddenly and was a mystery and unforetold in the Old Testament, it will end suddenly in the mystery of the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15. And, uh, and, and, and that puts an end to God's, uh, time period of the church age. And then the spotlight shifts back again to Israel, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think for me, something that's very important is the upper room discourse. As you know, uh, 92% of the Gospel of John is, or 93% is different from the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. And the Upper Room Discourse is that discourse that Christ gave the night before he was killed right. to, to his apostles. And he unveils the preacher of rapture in John 14, 1 through 3, the first time it's ever mentioned. And what's interesting is everything else that Christ enumerates throughout the rest of the Upper Room Discourse, including John 17 that he did in the garden later, is brand new church age truth. Everything is brand new. <laughs> and the Olivet Discourse was given two or three days earlier. That wraps up Israel. Right. You see, and, and people that try to find the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, you know, I'm sorry, it's just not there. Right. Uh, but you go and Christ unveils church age truth. And three times in the Upper Room Discourse, he says, I have more to tell you, but you're not able to bear it. But mm -hmm. when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all things, talking to the apostles. And so the New Testament that follows is uh, are those new things that he's talking about. And the first epistle that Paul wrote, the epistle to the Gentiles, uh, was Galatians in order to deal with that issue in Acts 15. But then his Next to epistles number two and three were first and second Thessalonians. <laughs> and that is the most eschatologically uh, impacted epistles in the, in the New Testament. And there he is, is explaining early on to them the, the rapture and all of these kinds of things in every chapter in first and second Thessalonians. Yeah. And so he introduces the rapture there. He expands on it in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, in, in the 52, 53, 54, around in there. And he calls it a mystery, right. meaning it's a brand new uh, truth that wasn't taught in the Old Testament. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you also have uh, the other major uh, passage. Uh, goodness, uh, you know, I, I had... Well, Titus two thirteen, uh, John fourteen, first that's two or second that's two, first uh, 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 Corinthians fifteen. Uh, you're talking about rapture passages, right? 
Well, I'm talking about major uh, rapture pass. I'm, I'm writing an article on it right now. And I can't even remember that. So, you know, <laughs> that, you know, I had a I had a heart thing. Yes, yeah, back well, of my memory. So, <laughs> why I don't do debates anymore and things. <laughs> well, I still wouldn't want to debate you. Let me tell you that. Oh, well, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the uh, the upper room discourse. I, I've often pointed out when I speak that the first reference cr historically chronologically anywhere on yes. planet earth to the rapture was april 1st 33 a.d in the upper room when jesus that uh or i guess april 2nd i'm sorry april 2nd 33 a.d thursday night uh in the <laughs> upper room uh when he mentions that you know i go to prepare a place for you if i go i will come again to receive you to where i am now they didn't understand it all it wasn't explicitly right. spelled out until 51 AD, when Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians, as you just said. But I like to point out, too, that uh, I see Galatians 1.4, Paul's first letter, mm. 49 AD, as a reference to the rapture, Christ who rescues us from this present evil age. Yes, definitely. Um, so, I mean, I think even from the very first note, you know, first sentence or two in the first letter that he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul's already expounding upon this uh, important New Testament doctrine. Yeah, I think there are three major passages that teach it, but there are like 45, 46 references in the New Testament to the rapture. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, because of that understanding, which I completely uh, agree with, the Olivet Discourse, which I hold happened on Wednesday of Passion Week, mm. so that would be April 1st, uh, does not reference the rapture. I know you agree with that. Uh, I probably learned it from you somewhere along the way. Um, and yet people really try to in interject the rapture and church age truth in the that uh, section, uh, and I know there's room for disagreement. People that we both respect and, and would hold in high regard might take a different interpretation of certain passages, but to me, it's much more consistent to see the whole thing as simply dealing with the second coming and the inauguration of the kingdom. Would you agree with that? Certainly, because uh, he's still dealing with Israel, the, the disciples as Israel. And, yeah. But not only that, uh, he... Uh, they like to say the passage talks about being taken. Right. Well, and and I think in the Luke version, it says, and where are they taken? It says, where the worm dieth not, and uh, I forget the rest of that. In other words, they're taken to judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Luke, I, I've always pointed that out. He, he So to clarify for our listeners, we're talking about the passage in Matthew uh, 24. And uh, of course, the Olivet Discourse is repeated in all three of the synoptics, uh, Mark 13 and, and uh, Luke uh, 21. But in Matthew 24, after giving the signs, which I take it are verses four all the way to you know 31 when he comes back then he gives sort of the application of being ready being watchful and he uses the illustration of noah and uh, we can come back to that if we have time but in the context there he says um if we're in the days of uh, before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the noah till the day that noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away well right. So in Luke, what's fascinating to me is Luke has an account of Jesus on another occasion, Luke 17, not the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus uses this same analogy of the days of Noah, the flood came, almost the verbatim language, but the text says the flood came and, quote, destroyed them all. 
Apalumi. So unless <laughs> unless Jesus is using the same analogy on two different occasions to mean exactly opposite meanings, which would be strange indeed, it's very clear to me that the ones taken away in this you know account, as they were in Noah's day, were the ones that were taken away in judgment, not rescued. Well, I you know I was part of the Jesus movement in the early seventies and. Uh, I preached a number of rapture passages from Matthew 20, Matthew sure. 24, knocking at your door, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but I, uh, Larry Norman's song, yeah. I wish we'd all been ready was huge. In fact, we used to sing yeah. that almost every time we'd gather. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he takes that passage that way. And if you look on his album cover, uh, that, where he has the first version of that, he's got Mark 13, which is a parallel to Matthew 24. Correct. Yeah. Open, open there. And, you know, that was greatly influential to a lot of people. Oh, uh, sure. T two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been, been ready. ready. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Hey, we should take this show on the road, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, the, you know, the Texas two men walking in a field, one taking the other left. And that sounds rapturesque. You can understand why people might go there. But in the context of the analogy with Noah, the ones left behind on the earth in Noah's day were the righteous. The ones taken yes. off the earth in judgment, as Luke tells us, were the unrighteous. So that's right. The rapture passage. Yeah. But I'm just saying everything was about the rapture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, back in those days. And, uh, you know, it was good that there was a lot of talk about the rapture and all of that. But nevertheless, uh, you know, uh, m music like that often entrenches something in somebody's mind and that I still love Larry Norman's song you know but uh, oh sure yeah I mean he he like all like we often do we might have the right doctrine but the wrong proof yeah. text you know yeah that's right and, and and that's what was the case with him right doctrine wrong proof text so uh so yeah I think the Bible when you begin to look at and uh you know maybe we can kind of close out here with a couple of these uh passages but when you begin to look at the distinctions between, you know, all the passages, because, of course, those who reject the idea of a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church and once for Israel, they believe there's only one coming, right? Right. Postmillennial, it doesn't matter. But when well, you, some forms of premillennialism as well. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. A historic premillennialism, right? right? See, which is so-called historical premillennialism. Yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> that's yes. They they're kind of trying to get some credit by coming up with a name, but uh, right. yeah, no, historic premill just doesn't work because um, you know, and and I've, I'm sure you've talked about this many times in your writings and lectures, but you know, basically, historic premill is the view that the rapture and the second coming, which they see are two events, happen at the same time basically right or one right after the well, other right yeah we we used to call that the yo-yo -yo rapture you go down to come right back up yeah yeah the yo-yo rapture but here's the problem with it never mind that you can you know show textually in scripture that it's not accurate uh we know from passages like first thessalonians 4 that at the rapture all believers are given their glorified body Right. Right. No, no question. We know from passages like Matthew 25 that uh, at the second coming, all unbelievers, the goats, are cast into the everlasting fire prepared for right. the angels. So if all if these two events happen right 
in close proximity to one another, as the historic pre-mill suggests, they're all believers are in their glorified bodies, all unbelievers right. are in hell. Who's left to populate the kingdom on earth where Christ is yeah. reigning? It's going to be pretty lonely, I think, don't you? Well, Gundry tries to manipulate it by separating them by a month or something like that. You know, in other words, putting some you have to put some separation in there. You see, and yeah, but that's a lot of procreation well, happening. I know, in a short you're time. talking about not having any textual basis to do that, <laughs> right? You know? Yeah, I mean, goodness, yeah. So, now, whereas, whereas pre tribulationalism <laughs> makes perfect sense, we're raptured at least seven years, I think up to seven to ten years before mm -hmm. the second coming. And during that time, I think right after rapture, there's going to be millions of people get saved. Just Absolutely. think of all the people that go to church and hear, have heard this or have a spouse, you know, and we're close to accepting Christ. And when the rapture happens, man, all over the world, it's going to be a uniform disappearance yeah. uh, from all over the world. And I think millions of people are going to start getting saved even before the tribulation begins. And then you have... The multitude too great to be numbered in, in Revelation chapter 7 of people who come out of the tribulation are martyred. Yeah. And so some are, uh, and, and it talks about how one third of the Jews at the end are going to be saved and go into the millennium mm -hmm. in Zechariah. Yeah. I mean, you, so you have these kind of details uh, that people that don't study the Bible very deeply usually don't factor into their thinking. No, they don't. Yeah, at the end of the tribulation, you've got the Jew, the believing Jewish remnant, the, when all Israel is delivered into the kingdom, as Paul said in Romans 11. Uh, and then you've got, of course, the, mar the uh, uh, believing Gentiles who did not get martyred, who survived, right. head out in the hills or whatever. And so they'll be the ones that to whom Jesus says, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, and they populate the kingdom. But that's a fascinating point that you just made that uh, that's why I love talking to you. I always pick up things that I really haven't thought much about, but I frequently will say uh somewhat hastily or generically that you know at the start of the millennium it's only believers on earth but at the start right. of the tribulation it's only unbelievers but that's not necessarily true because theoretically no. and quite likely you'll have a lot of believers that get saved in that gap of time between right. the rapture and the tribulation so yeah and, and you know they're talking about depopulating the earth and i got to thinking about that they say i have heard i don't know if it's true that uh the earth population just in the last couple of years has gone down a half a billion. I don't know that, but I've heard that. Well, just think when the rapture occurs, I don't want to do a number. Uh, I have no idea, but uh, yeah. that's going to reduce the population. I would think by, you know, somewhere between three quarters and a billion people or more. And then you have a little over half of the earth's population being killed during the tribulation. So these people that want to see the earth depopulated, tell them just wait a while. <laughs> they it's they need to, <laughs> yeah, they need to believe in the rapture. Yeah, I was going to call up a uh, a uh, a message I did in Orlando at Prophecy Watchers. It was called uh, "Bloodlust: Exposing the Luciferian Depopulation Agenda." And for that message, I did a little calculating on uh, in, mm. to, to take advantage or to, to consider the rapture and here was my calculations uh see if you think obviously okay. this is pure speculation but see if you think it, it may may make logical sense i said i started with an assumption that there's eight billion people on the earth we have to start right. somewhere let's assume that i then predicted or speculated i should say that two billion christians are raptured 
Don't know if that's true or not, but let's just say, let's be optimistic, right? And so, so that leaves 6 billion people. And then I said, let's assume of those, of the ones left behind, 2 billion die in the immediate aftermath of the chaos and destruction that ensues. Because you got to figure auto accidents, plane crashes, yes. building collapses, nuclear plant meltdowns. So let's assume another 2 billion die in the immediate aftermath of the rapture that are left behind. So that means by the time you get to the tribulation, uh, you're at roughly 4 billion people. And then you just look at the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. You've got a quarter of the earth dying at the fourth seal. That leaves 3 billion. A third more die on the sixth trumpet. That leaves 2 billion. Uh, let's assume a billion or so die throughout the, the, the day of the Lord's wrath uh, from, you know, devastation, from Satan's wrath, from God's wrath. So, you know, by the time Christ comes back, there could only be 1 billion people on the earth, you know? Right. So that's kind of the way my mind, uh, my mind works. But, um, you know, one of the things that I think the, the arguments getting back to our kind of our, our theme or our focus, which is debunking lies about the rapture. I think they make an, uh, you know, opponents of the rapture make a, an exegetical, uh, mistake, uh, kind of like D.A. Carson would talk about, uh, and that is they they assume that uh, parousia is a technical term, right? And and every time they see that word, they think, oh, it must be the same event. But what would you say to that argument? Well, it's not context, you know. In fact, there's a lot of different words that are used for the rapture. Mm -hmm. uh, the word, even the word rapture, they try to say, well, that's not even in the Bible. Well, it, it is in the Latin Bible. That's where mm -hmm. we get the term. Because yeah. in Europe, back in the uh, late 1500s, early 1600s, all of these Reformed scholars would get together from different languages. But as academics, they all wrote in Latin. Mm -hmm. and so they would speak Latin. And they're the ones, I looked it up in Oxford English Dictionary, the 22-24 volume dictionary, and the first use of rapture was in the early 1600s. Wow. And yeah. so uh, that was the Latin term that they spoke about these things. And hardly any of these people believed in the rapture, as we do. Right. You know? And so that that is simply something like Trinity, you know, that that came into, uh, you know, Christian parlance, you know, over time. And so that that is just one of the most sophomoric statements. Oh, the rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, the catching up is or how Lindsay used to say you, you could translate uh, caught up as snatch. And we'd be talking about the great snatch. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, harpazo, snatched out of harm's way as one of the lexical uh, meanings of that word. But yeah, you know, now, uh, when you talked about the Latin word, uh, what is it, rapire or something? I, I can't remember the exact Latin word, but that's where rapture comes from. Or different forms. Yeah, of, yeah, it depends uh, on the, the declension. But um but when you talk about that being used in the 1600s, uh, that's uh, you must be mistaken because rapture didn't come into existence until Darby had a conversation <laughs> with a 15-year-old demon-possessed girl, and that was at least 200 years later. So, uh, yeah, it is well, sophomoric. Um, when people say uh, rapture is not in the Bible, I love to you know to look them right in the eye and say, "You're right. Neither is God." or Jesus, or heaven, or any English word, because the Bible wasn't written in English. It's a translation. <laughs> <laughs> and so, the, the rapture is an English a, word. I've never heard that. That's great. That's a great answer. Yeah. I mean, the Bible wasn't written in English. So, but yeah. when you go back to Jerome's translation of the Greek, there it is, right there in First Thess 4, uh, what, uh, 13, or whatever, 16, whatever the word occurs. So, so, yeah. So, well, Tommy, this has just been 
just a delight. Uh, I think uh, folks need to understand that uh, the Bible clearly teaches a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, if you compare and contrast the, say, 1 Thessalonians 4 with Revelation 19, they can't possibly be talking about the same event. Yeah, go ahead. Let me, as we close, let me just point out the purpose of the rapture. Amen. See, if any of the other views don't have a significant purpose. Pre-tribulationalism ends the temporary church age where Jew and Gentile are co-equal in Christ. You cannot have the 70th week of Daniel where Israel is the instrument through which he's working uh, and uh, have the church also functioning at the same time. So this is why the church age is the only temporary age that was introduced, as you implied earlier in the conversation, uh, uh, secretly and not secretly, but unexpectedly from a prophetic viewpoint, and it ends unexpectedly. Uh, and so the fact, the purpose of the rapture is to remove the instrument, the church through which he's working, so that Israel can complete her 70th week and fulfill the prophecy, you know, that's given by her. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who may not be familiar, and I suspect most of our listeners are, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, week in Hebrew is Shabua, and it refers to a seven-year period, uh, just like uh, 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 Abraham, Isaac, Jacob worked for Laban for one Shabua to to earn the rights to Rachel, and then he, he pulled the old Shritaru, and he got uh, uh, whoever, and Leah, I think, instead. Yes. My... Uh, I'm a dispensationalist, so I don't spend much time in the Old Testament. But anyway, um, <laughs> just kidding, of course. But so a Shabua, Daniel uh, got this prophecy from God in Daniel 9 that, that, that God had ordained 490 years, 70 Shabuas, 77-year periods for Israel. And what's amazing is that the first 483 years were fulfilled literally to the day on a yes. calendar. 483 years. The, and the yet, day Christ rode into Jerusalem, according to Luke, was the yeah. day that the first 69 weeks of years were fulfilled. Absolutely. It's fascinating when you go back to the decree of Artaxerxes and you count it out 173,880 days uh, because the Hebrew calendar had 360 days a year. Uh, and I sat under Honer and, and had to study that. It's yes. The lowest grade I made in my entire THM degree was from Dr. Honer, but he was he was right on and it works out perfectly. So how can you take the final seven years of that 490-year program and spiritualize it away as preterists and others do and claim that it was metaphorical or symbolic. No, no, it's going to be literal. And that, as you said, the rapture takes the church out of the way because first that's one 10 first that's five, nine, we're not appointed to wrath. Uh, the prophetic wrath of God is, you know, we're not under that wrath. So he rescues us before the wrath of God, not before things get bad, by the way, that's another right. lie about know. the rapture. Yeah, we don't know. And you know, a lot of people will try to, criticize the rapture by creating a straw man and claiming that we're teaching that, oh, you know, we're going to be rescued before it gets bad. Well, that's also naive and and sophomoric because 2,000 years of church history has shown that believers and brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered immensely for the cause of Christ. So Millions we're not, have died. Millions. And today, too, they're dying. Uh, you know, that's so right. the rapture doesn't rescue us before it gets bad, quote-unquote, as some people suggest. It rescues us before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, and then the spotlight shifts, as you said, back to Israel, uh, 
If you think of us, the world as a stage, you know, Israel was was Act One, just to simplify it. The church is Act Two, but there's a third act coming, and that's Israel, and uh, God's going to put them back center stage again. So, but that is the purpose. It's to 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 end this temporary age with the church, and uh, so praise God for that. So, I hope uh, if you're listening to this that you are ready and watching and eagerly awaiting, uh, as uh, the New Testament says. Um, for the return of Christ. If you're not, it's a simple matter of faith. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the punishment for that sin is eternal separation from God and a literal place of torment called hell. But God has made it possible for no one to have to go there. He's paid the penalty at the cross. Christ Jesus is the uh, propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And any who in simple childlike faith receive from him the free gift of eternal life purchased with his own blood can be forgiven of their sin and have eternal life. So I hope you'll trust in Christ today if you haven't already. For those of you that know the Lord already, uh, continue to, uh, to to look toward the east, right, Tommy? Yep. It's it's going to happen, you know. Someday, one day is going to be today. That's what I said. Larry Norman had a song that said, "If you look to the east, you'll see the beast rise." No, that was another group from San Antonio, and it goes, "Don't take the number." Don't take the number. <laughs> Don't take the number. <laughs> Amen. Well, we'll have to do this again. I know you're uh, one of the busiest guys on the planet with your writing and research, but uh, I'm looking forward to speaking again this year at pre-trib, the pre-trib conference. So I want to mention that before we close. Uh, folks can co go to pre-trib.org, pre-trib.org, and that's where you can learn about uh, Dr. Ice's Pre-Trib Research Center and the annual conference that they put on. How many years now has that been? This will be our 32nd straight year. 32nd straight year. Wow. Praise God. Yeah. And so uh, I've spoken a few times there, speaking again this year on uh, the uh Spirit of the False Prophet, Hacking and Tracking. We've had at least 80 members die during those 30 years. Wow. Well, wow. including Dr. LaHaye. The first time I ever spoke yeah, at your conference right. was the 25th anniversary, which I think was the year that he died, if I'm remembering. Well, right. uh, no, it would be the 27th. 27th. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just uh, it's just something I remember. That's when I first met you. I mentioned that at the in I the see. introduction. Uh, I was at uh, in academics at the time, and... Uh, had not heard of pre-trib, but a few fellow faculty members uh, went every year from the College of Biblical Studies, and uh, they said, hey, you should come with us. I went up, and it changed my life. That's where I met Mike Staller. That's where I decided that uh, I was planning to go to Southwestern for my PhD. I'd been accepted uh, and was all but ready to enroll, but uh, the Lord used that awesome. providential wow, encounter. I yeah, you know, oh yeah, no. I was I was, you know, getting ready to start the French and German and I uh, taking all the entrance exams and um but through that providential meeting at the pre-trib conference with Dr. Mike Staller that changed my direction. Wow. It changed my life. I mean, he really yes. helped me mold and shape my thinking in so many areas. Uh and then began, you know, coming whenever I could through the years um but, uh, you know, started speaking uh, when you first asked me to speak, you know, uh, several years ago, and I've had the chance to speak a few times. So 
if folks want to attend, it's open to the public, right? They can yes. register. And uh, uh, if you register now, you get a better price because uh, right. uh, early registration you know, is one price and it goes up. So pre-trib.org, it'll tell you all about the conference. Uh, who are some of the other speakers? Uh, you got Jeff Kinley is going to be the keynote. Dr. Jeff Kinley, we have, a ban- we have a banquet on Monday nights, and he's going to be our banquet speaker. Okay. We have a little, little music and stuff. Otherwise, we don't have music. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Andy Woods. Yeah. Uh, Randy Price. Uh, Mike Vlock. Scott Gallatin. Uh, Calvary Chapel guy. Yeah. Uh, J.B. J. Hickson. You ever heard of him? I've heard of him. He, he's. Uh, I agree with most of what he says. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I remember listening to one of my sermons, and I found three things I disagreed with me on. But nevertheless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lee yeah. Brainerd, uh, Oliver Olivier uh, Melnick, uh, Jesse Randolph, uh, me, and Dave Reagan. Wow, what a lineup. I don't know how in the world I got included in that mix, but uh, can't wait to hear some of those speakers. Uh, what a great conference. It's December uh, the 4th through yeah. 6th, and uh, we start at 8 on December 4th. It's a Monday, and we get out at noon on December 6th. On the 6th, so Wednesday all day, Tuesday all day, and then half a day on Wednesday, yeah. December 4th through the 6th. Check it out. I'll be with uh, Randy Price uh, in next, or in September at a conference in Fort Collins. I'm looking forward to, to that. He and I have done a lot together through the years. But uh, anyway, thanks again so much. And as always, folks, thanks for listening. If we can ever help, reach out to us at notbyworks.org. Uh, I want to remind you that tomorrow morning, uh, that's a, a rare Saturday podcast. Uh, we've got a, a new sh- uh, limited series that we're doing with my uh, friend and geopolitical expert, Randy, on how to prepare. And tomorrow's episode is the inaugural one of those. It'll be how to prepare for an EMP or cyber attack. So I encourage you to look forward to that uh, tomorrow morning. But until next time, God bless you, everyone. And thanks again, Dr. Ice. You're welcome. See you here, there in the air. Amen. God bless.